passage that I'll be using for Sunday morning's discussion is found in a couple of places in the Jesus tradition. Now, just for a little personal context, for the last several months, I've been trying to get a handle on the nature of the calling of the disciples by Jesus. The following discussion is the result of one of those sidebars from my readings. Now, I'll be interested in hearing each of your assessments of my perspective. The time that we take to discuss our own perspectives regarding our common sacred texts is such a unique and beneficial time, is it not? It's a breath of fresh air and amid the traditional congestion, I would say, of our current American religious scene. So, Jesus' words have been recorded that we're going to discuss as follows. Quote, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. End quote. Now, we find Jesus' comments on the relations between God and mammon in a long discussion that has come to be called the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, and in an extended discussion with his disciples and others in Luke. In true prophetic tradition, Jesus sets up a binary. You cannot have it both ways. What he does not discuss is why why can't you have it both ways? What is it about the natures of God, and I would include religion here, and mammon, and I would include money here, that make them incompatible? Is money somehow inherently evil, as some might believe? Or is money to be seen as a necessary evil, which is a more popular notion today? Or is it that there's nothing wrong with money, but it is the love of money that is the problem, as most Christians, at least in America, see it? Well, let me, as they say, follow the money for a moment. There's a famous sociologist by the, na by the name of Max Weber who po postulated Quote, money is the most abstract and impersonal element that exists in human life. End quote. This should be not that terribly revolutionary. Uh, let me just give an example of this. Many people today don't even see a paycheck because they choose direct deposit. Okay, there's no personal negotiating or exchange. Now, from this quote of Weber's, you can see that he is analyzing money on a continuum of how humans relate to things around them. This spectrum runs from impersonal at the one end to personal at the other. Now, from Weber's perspective, the personal experience occurs in the tangible sense of kinship 
developed within familial and religious communities. And on the other hand, the impersonal experience occurs with the contractual relations operating in the modern world of money, which works against any religious ethics of human reciprocity or mutuality or solidarity. So for Weber, there seems to be an inherent conflict between money and religion, between the competition of the market, money, and the cooperation of the religious community in seeking salvation. Now, Weber found that, quote, ultimately no genuine religion of salvation that he had researched, and he went you know, all, uh, all globally on this, no uh, ultimate um, ultimately, no genuine religion of salvation has overcome the tension between their religiosity and a rational economy. No religion has been able to put those two together. But he did identify two ways that religion has developed to deal with this uh, dilemma. On the one hand, there is the religious ethics of self-discipline that he called the Protestant ethic. He wrote a famous book with that, uh, uh, that phrase in, 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 the, uh, in its name. And on the other hand, a religious mysticism of self-sacrifice. So you've got religious ethics of self-discipline and a religious mysticism of self-sacrifice, whereby a mystic's benevolence does not ask about the recipient because the benevolence is an objectless devotion to anybody or anything. In other words, it is for devotion's sake and, and, and it's in devotion's sake alone. Now, as an example, many of us will give a couple of dollars. Many of us have done this, you know, to panhandlers at the off-ramp off-ramps or intersections. But we give the money, but not even really knowing where the money will be used for, but we give it to the, you know, to the person. But a true mystic would put the money in a can, set it at the off-ramp if the person was there or not. Hopefully you can see the difference but Weber's point is that the two coping strategies lead to very different ends. The religious ethics of self-discipline leads to accumulating money. And this was the point of his famous book. And the religious mysticism of self-sacrifice leads to giving it away. So you've got self-discipline accumulates money self-sacrifice gives it away. So my question is, why or how could these two religious strategies come to such different results regarding financial gain in terms of money? Well, let's look at the concept of money a little more closely. Money can be defined as a medium of exchange. This is just coming from, a di from the dictionary. A unit of accounting 
and a store of value, okay? But money is also a symbolic system that can generate powerful moods and motivations. It can generate desires and agency. And it dresses this symbolic system up in such a way as to make it seem ultimately real. In this sense, money is the center of a moral economy. Okay, now, or another way of saying that is money can be seen as a material spirituality. And, okay, hang on, stay with me on this. An almost religious mystery. Okay, now you might be thinking, wow, Mason has really uh, allowed his age to catch up with him. But let me just illustrate what I'm saying. So just stick with me here. I'm going to bring on Sunday, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring a dollar bill, um, and, and we'll look at this together. But a dollar bill displays sacred symbols. Have any of you really looked at a dollar bill lately or ever looked at a dollar bill? So, for instance, the Egyptian pyramid with the all-seeing divine eye or the American eagle of war and peace. There are religious slogans in God we trust and Latin phrases, anuit captis, which means God has favored our beginnings, and novus ordu seclorum, which means a new order of the ages. These are all, <laughs> all this is on our dollar bill. Religious meanings, hopes, and dreams are directly invested in American money. Or one could say that at least on the American scene, money has a sacred character. Now I'm going to give one, there's many examples of this, but one that was just so striking to me at the beginning of the year is from U.S. politics back in, uh, that started back in November 2021. Uh, which was highlighted by the Democratic senator from Georgia, uh, Raphael Warnock, regarding the different approaches to two crucial pro- pro- problems that face the U.S. And they still face the U.S., by the way. One centers on the nature of our democracy. Voting rights, okay? The other centers on the nature of our economy funding our national budget. Now, notice how the debate was played out. I'll help you with this. The filibuster uh, was being used to prevent a vote on federal legislation to support voting rights. So there had been calls on the, um, on the floor of the uh, Congress to do away with the filibuster. Now, that debate, by the way, is still going on. Now, the response to this had been, we cannot, because 
that would entail changing the Senate's rules. We cannot disband the filibuster, so debate can take place. But when it came to the debt ceiling, the economy, the Senate's rules were changed. In fact, that is becoming an annual event as the debt ceiling continues to rise. So from the U.S.'s perspective, it seems that money, in terms of the economy, functions as sacred to the point that it can command attention, even if it means changing our national rules. That's what I'm talking about in terms of the symbolic power. So, by way of contrast, it is interesting that a cursory study of religions quickly reveals that blood is sacred. And this is certainly true in Judaism and Christianity. But I hope we can see that in America, at least, money is sacred as well. And in fact, they've become wedded, blood and money. What is also fascinating is how in the rhetoric of American religious nationalism, blood and money have often been fused. Let me give you another example. How many of you have heard of the American creed adopted by Congress in 1918? Well, uh, there is an American creed that, um, uh, uh, that is a part of our country's tradition. And in that, we find a confession of faith in the nation. Quote, For whom American patriots sacrifice their lives and fortunes. That is, their blood and money. In a similar fashion, the words blood and treasure have been recurring themes, rhetorical uh, 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 phrases throughout American history. And this interchange between money is central to any national re- nationalist rhetoric of redemptive sacrifice. Blood symbolizes continuity with the past and uniformity with the present. Both, the past and present, can be constructed only through killing and being killed. Metaphorically, the blood of redemptive sacrifice is often represented as if it were money. How many of you have heard the phrase, he or she has paid the highest, you're exactly right, price, the highest price that an individual can pay to ensure the survival of the group? Now, We've been talking about money. Let's, let's get back into um, Jesus' day. The Palestine of Jesus' day was not immune to this monetization of the economy. The temple system itself had been monetized for quite some time and used only specific currency, the Tyrian shekel, all foreign, all foreign currency had to be exchanged at the temple gates to, for, before people could proceed into the temple compound. 
So let me just interject some questions about Jesus's ministry at this point, because so much Christian rhetoric ends up completely missing the point. Could the anger, here's just a question, could the anger that energized Jesus's actions in the temple be related to his understanding of the impersonal nature of money? Another question, could Jesus' initial presentation of his mission at Nazareth that embodied the jubilee economics of redistributive justice have been generated by his understanding the symbolic power that money can produce in terms of desires and motivations? Or did his understanding of money play into his calling of the disciples to voluntary renunciation? Lastly, or just, I mean, there's many questions, but here's the last question. Could a part of the background to his dispute of giving money to Caesar lie here with the seduction that money symbolizes? You see, I think that it might have taken a long time for someone like Weber to theorize about the nature of money. But Jesus and the prophetic tradition he relied on understood, I believe, the power of mammon that was a driving force, not only in the temple system, but also in the politics of Roman occupation. And in this regard, His message is at the same time a message against empire and against religious accommodation and institutionalization. On the contrary, he challenged local community dynamics to operate differently, to operate in such a way that personal and interpersonal dynamics of the group take priority. So when Jesus tells all those listening to him, you cannot serve both God and mammon, he means mammon in the sense of symbolic capital. Money as a medium of exchange is not inherently evil. Nor is money as a medium of exchange a necessary evil. But money as a powerful symbolic system is inherently impersonal and contractual. Do this or that for this amount of time and you'll get paid this amount. That's the American way. That's the Western way. Or like the the Facebook meme, quote, why work yourself to death when the company will just replace you in a week after you die, end quote. Love of money as a medium of exchange doesn't quite get at it either because it does not address the force that a symbolic system can generate. As any symbolic system can, Money generates desires and motivations. But many times these desires are impersonal. A desire for more money or more security because money can buy security and a certain amount of happiness. 
So where does that leave us as followers of Jesus in a capitalistic world that is predicated on, or let me say, that has its driving force as selfish desire? We all have to work to exist, to pay the bills, feed the family, provide for a certain amount of self-care as well. But this cannot be the end of the story. It cannot be the driving force of our existence. It cannot be the position from which we make all of our decisions, especially the important ones. Because a life lived and life decisions made solely based or even primarily based on economics ends up in an impersonal pit that it is not easy to dig out from. The sacred life is a personal one that should roll over into interpersonal connections and relationships. And even that doesn't always happen. We have to make choices and decisions every day in all areas of life, which at least include how we approach and navigate questions of economics, politics, and culture. For instance, what am I going to eat? Where? Do I go out? Fast food or sit down? Do I change jobs or do I go back to school? Who should I vote for? Do I shop for fashion or comfort? Many, many questions daily. I'm only suggesting that Jesus' words here can help us to center ourselves or recenter, as the case may be, regarding what is ultimately important to our existence here on earth in Southern California in 2022. Is it the personal that is the driving force or the impersonal? Is it God or mammon? I look forward to your conversations on Sunday.